If you decided to listen to this week's message of Daxadeo Fichard Park, we know that Jesus has placed something on your heart. So let's dive in. This is probably the most important question that you will ever have to answer in life. And the question is not which way the toilet paper roll should go, because everyone knows it should go under, not over, okay? The question is not whether pineapple is okay on pizza, because everyone, including Jesus himself, knows it's not. It does not belong on pizza. It belongs in a fruit salad. The most important question you and I will have to answer, you and I will have to reach a conclusion on somewhere in your faith journey. And it's the question of who is Jesus? Is Jesus one of many really cool philosophers, moral teachers that had some really interesting thoughts and things to share? Is he one of many gods out there? Is he one way to heaven? Is he one of the many different ways to heaven? Is Jesus a crazy person that actually succeeded in tricking millions of people into following him and giving their lives? Or is he really who he said he was? It's in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples this very question. He's having a conversation with his followers and he asks them, tell me, who do the people say I am? What's the word on the street? They have different answers. They answer Jesus and say, listen, Jesus, some people say you're a prophet, you know, like Elijah and all those great, interesting people we look to. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say this, some people say that. And then Jesus, he goes in for the kill, like the jugular, the aorta, okay? And he asks them, okay, great. Who do you say I am? What is the conclusion that you have reached regarding me and my identity? Peter incredibly has this moment of revelation and clarity. He looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, you are the son of God, the Messiah, the one we have been waiting for for thousands of years. And Jesus calls Peter blessed because of that. Isn't that strange? You see, blessing, hello Jesus, (laughs) blessing, the blessed life comes from not things, but the blessed life as Jesus describes in this moment comes from an understanding who he is. And we're in a series called Jesus Is. This is our ramp up to Easter, because if you did not know it, we've already reached that time in the year where it's Easter, which means winter is around the corner, which means winter is basically August and August is basically Christmas. Okay, so we're now in that part of the year where it's downhill from here. Okay, like January is long gone. We're at Easter. And just before I go on, just a quick little ad break, but this coming weekend, we actually have an incredibly special time together as a church family. So Friday is a public holiday. Thank you, Jesus. Like he knew that in April we would need days like this, right? But Friday is called Good Friday. And on this Good Friday, we are actually having two Easter productions together, 
all of our campuses in bloom. So Doxadeo Fichat Park, Doxadeo Central, Doxadeo North, all of us are going to come together on Friday morning in this building celebrating Jesus together. We're going to have two services, one at 8.30 in the morning and one at 10 o'clock in the morning. And for you, because don't say I don't love you, but we want to invite our evening service to attend the 10 o'clock service because then you can sleep late. Hallelujah. Don't say I don't love you. I fought for you in our staff meetings. I went, no, let's have our people sleep late a little bit because we need that now and again. So we want to invite you. Make sure you join us on Good Friday at 10 o'clock. Or if you really want to get up early, you're welcome to attend the 8.30 service as well. But we're going to have an incredibly uh, special Easter production called Blown Away. And it is something that you do not want to miss. So make sure you join us for that. And Sunday is church as usual. We're going to come together, celebrate the fact that Jesus is no longer on the cross, but that he is alive. So make sure you join us for that. So we're looking at a few Jesus is statements in our ramp up to Easter. Last week, we kicked off with this whole idea of Jesus is greater than what you think. And we journeyed through the whole idea of, my friend, Jesus is way bigger than your preconceived ideas about him. He is beyond your train of thought. He is beyond who you think he is, and still you get to know him in a personal way. Tonight, we want to continue with this train of thought, with the whole Jesus is sentiment. And tonight, we want to journey through the idea of Jesus is greater than the rule book. He is greater than the rule book. I have three really simple ideas I want to share with you, and they are this. Jesus is greater than a place. Jesus is greater than my performance, and Jesus is greater than the pools. I promise you that last P will make sense. Just stick with me, okay? He's greater than a place, he's greater than my performance, and he's greater than the pools. But before we dive in, can we just take a moment and pray together? Just fix our eyes upon Jesus. We love praying in this church. Let's just turn our gaze upon him. So Father, we pray for the word that we're going to dive into Holy Spirit, thank you that you are already here. We don't need to welcome you or usher you. You are here with your children, and we celebrate that. And we pray, Father, that you will speak to us tonight, that you would make known your will to us, and that no one would leave this space tonight, Father, without having heard you speak to them. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. Jesus is greater than a place. He's greater than my performance, and he's greater than any pool that you think you might need. I promise you that P will make sense. But let's kick off with the idea, Jesus is greater than a place. Here's the thing. In ancient Israel, temples were a really big deal. What do I mean by that? Every single religion had a place of worship. Every single faith had a temple where the followers of whoever God that is, they would go to this specific place and they would worship their God at that temple, at that specific place. And God himself actually instructs his followers in Exodus chapter 25 and he tells them, build me a temple. Build me a sanctuary. Let's read together. It's in verse 8, Exodus 25. He says, have they make a sanctuary for me 
and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. After this, God spends five whole chapters spanning from Exodus 25 up until Exodus 30, giving detailed instructions about the place that they need to build for his presence. The temple that he wants his holy presence to go and live in. He spends five chapters telling them, you know, the stand should look like this. The walls need to be full of this. This is what you need. Five whole chapters describing the place. Places of worship is a big deal in this culture. If you would meet someone on the road during this time and they tell you, I am a follower of this God or that God, the immediate follow-up question would be this, where is your temple? Where do you go to worship? Where does your God live? Show me or take me with you to the place where your God resides in. Fast forward a few years and God's people actually built this temple. They take God, all the instructions that he gave them, you know, all the instructions he gave to Moses, and they build a temple and it says God's holy presence. Remember this, the creator of the universe actually limits himself and moves into this place that these people have built for him. His holy presence, his incredible anointed so extravagant personality moves into this place. Temples in this time was a big deal. It was hugely important. Why? Because God lived there. If God were to have an address, this is where it would be, in the temple. Fast forward a few thousand years, and we suddenly meet a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus of Nazareth, he loves kind of upsetting the status quo. And he makes a statement in one of uh, the Gospels. We're going to read it together in a moment. But he makes a statement in one of the Gospels that is so shocking, so radical, and so blasphemous that this is the moment where they start plotting to actually arrest him, murder him, and get him out of the way because the things that he is saying is such heresy. They believed. Let's read together in Matthew chapter 12. It says from verse 1, At that time Jesus went through the grain field on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. They were not allowed to do this on Sabbath. They were not allowed to work, not allowed to pick grain, not allowed to really do a whole lot more. And they say, your disciples can't do this. Jesus responds, and he says, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. The temple, okay, the place where God lives, where his mail is forwarded to, in a sense, okay, the holy presence of God lives in this place. And they say, he says, he and his companions, and they ate the consecrated bread. Always when I read this, I picture all of us when we have communion, and it's after church, you know, and the service is done, and there's still bread left, and it's so lacquer, right? And all of us just like start picking at the leftover communion bread, which is fine, friend, you're allowed to do that, okay? That's kind of where my mind goes to when I read this. 
And then he says in verse 5, For haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? But then, get this, and then he says in verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here among you. Friends, this was blasphemy in their minds. This was a statement so shocking, so radical. Why? Because nothing is greater than the temple. Nothing is greater than the place where God's holy presence lives. And here comes this man, Jesus, and he says, something even greater than that is here with you now. What is Jesus saying in this moment? He's actually saying, you think the presence of God is in the temple, in a certain place. I'm telling you, I am the presence of God. And in their minds, lights start going off and they think heretic, blasphemy, heresy. You can't say that. And this is where they start plotting to kill him. You see, Jesus is saying here, I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than the place you go to worship. You think God's presence is in a building. I am the presence of God. You think God's presence is there somewhere behind a holy veil where only certain priests are allowed to go into. I'm telling you, the presence of God is right in front of you. That is a radical statement. He's saying the presence of God is not shut up anymore in an inaccessible place. The presence of God is walking with you in the, the grain fields, picking them, eating them. This was a revolutionary statement. But then Jesus goes even further. So he already upsets them. And they start saying, heresy, blasphemy. Then he goes a step further. In John chapter 14, verse 23, Jesus says that whoever believes in him, him and the Father will come and make their home inside that person. What? He goes a step further. He not only says the presence of God is no longer only in the temple or a place reserved for a certain few, not only that, but now the presence of God can even be inside of you if you believe in him. This was revolutionary. This was unheard of because up until this moment, the place was everything. The temple was everything. And here Jesus comes and he says, I am greater than the place. I am God's presence in human form. And even better, if you choose to put your faith in me, not only am I among you, but I am inside you. This was revolutionary for this time. First Corinthians 3 verse 16 says, don't you realize that you are the temple? Radical. You are the temple um, of God and that the spirit of God lives in you. This is the incredible truth that we celebrate as always, but that we especially start celebrating as we build up to Easter time together. Celebrating the fact that because of the life, because of the death, because of the resurrection of this Jesus of Nazareth, God's presence is no longer out there somewhere. God's presence is no longer in one place. God's presence is no longer in the beautiful holy temple where only the very select few 
the religious elite, the priests only are allowed to go into. But suddenly, because of what he has done, not only is his presence among us, but his presence is within us through faith. Revolutionary, Jesus saying, I'm greater than a place. You see, this is what sets Christianity apart. Because every other religion still has a place. They still have some other temple. They still have a place somewhere where you need to go to that place in order to worship. You need to climb those stairs or you need to journey or you need to exile or go on a pilgrimage or whatever to reach a place and there God will be. And Jesus upsets the whole status quo and he says, my friend, my son, my daughter, if you have faith in me, I make my home inside of you. It's what sets our faith apart from other faiths. Now, now, let me be clear. Gathering like this, this is incredibly important. And we're actually going to preach on that soon. So stick with us. But gathering together like this on a Sunday is indispensable to your faith. Trust me. But do you realize that there's nothing special about this building? Because we often think like that, right? We think I need to go to church in order to be close to God. I need to go to 29 Van Idekinge Avenue, Fichard Park, because God is there. My friend, let me be honest with you. This is a very sad place in the week when you're not here. Okay, this auditorium is dark and scary and lonely and you don't want to be locked up in here. Believe me, because sometimes we think like that. I need to go somewhere. I need to go to church in order to be close to God. And even though gathering like this is really important, but that's a sermon for another day. Jesus is saying, do you realize you can be close to me at all times by faith? You don't need to go to 29 Van Idekinge Avenue, Fichard Park, in the auditorium of Doxadeo to be close to me. This place leaks when it rains. It's dark and cold when you're not here. It's lonely and empty. What makes this place holy in this moment is the fact that we're all gathered here and Jesus lives inside of us. He's greater than a place. Greater than the temple. Jesus was actually really outspoken against this. When he meets a woman at the well, she says, no, our ancestors used to worship on the mountain. Where do you say, where do you say, where do you say we should worship? And Jesus tells her, a time is coming where you won't worship on the mountain, but you'll worship me in spirit and in truth. Again, making the statement, it's not about the place. It's about in the person your faith is placed into. And Jesus lives inside of us. He was outspoken. He was outspoken against that. But he was also very vocal about the idea of performance. And this is something we preach on a lot. If you've been with us for more than one week, you would have heard us say somewhere, my friend, there is zip, zilch, nada, nothing, zero things you can do to make God love you more. Because that's also how we think often, right? We think God will love me more if I read my Bible more. It's logical. God will love me more when I pray more. God will love me like a lot if I start giving to the church. I mean, that's like something A-star Christians do. We think like that a lot. 
But if you've been a part of this family for a while, you would hear us say that a lot. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. Because you see, in the Old Testament, the people of God, those who followed him, they had a lot to do. They had a long list of things they needed to do in order to be good with God, in order to be in right standing with God, in order to have the blessing of God. And we on this side of the Old Testament, because we are in the New Testament side, but we on this side, we now know that that did nothing for them. The trying really hard, the performing your very best did nothing for these people. It did not solve the problem. It did not make them any more holy. Now you might be wondering at this stage, if all the laws and everything they had to do in the Old Testament was useless and didn't work, then why did the law even exist? What was the point? If it didn't work, why did God give the Ten Commandments? If God knew that the Ten Commandments won't fix the brokenness in their hearts, why would he give it in the first place? Galatians chapter 3 gives us insight to this. In verse 23 of Galatians 3, it says, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. This is an incredible sentence because what Paul is actually writing about in this moment, he's saying the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets and all the other laws that the people following God had to obey, it was always from the very beginning, from its inception, the idea was that it would be temporary until a better way was available it goes on to say, let me put it another way if it's unclear. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through what? Through performance, through more obedience, through trying harder, being a better Christian, leveling up in my Christianity. No, through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. We no longer need to perform. We no longer need to abide or obey the commandments. Faith and faith in Jesus was always the end goal. It ends off by saying, for you are all children of God through faith, faith, faith in Christ Jesus. Let me make this clear. Jesus did not come to abolish as in destroy the credibility of the Old Testament law, not at all. But you see, if the Old Testament law was a piece of homework, Jesus was completing it. If it were a speech, Jesus was concluding it. If the Old Testament law was a plane, Jesus was busy landing it, okay? Saying, this was good up until now. This was helpful for you up until now. 
This was good for you to try and abide and obey by these things up until now. But now, seeing that I, Jesus, am here, a better way is available to you. A way of faith. That is liberating for us because that means I don't have to rely on my own performance in order to be good with Jesus because he's greater than my performance. I can rely on his obedience. I can rely on the fact that he was able to stay obedient even when we could not. I can rely on Him. I can look at Him. I can look to Him. I can put my faith in Him because He was obedient up until the very end. Jesus is greater than performance. Galatians 3, a little bit earlier on in that chapter, it says in verse 10, those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under a curse. Friend, you can try to be the best Christian out there until you are blue in the face. You can try. It will not help you. What does help, what does bring life, what does set us free is the way of faith. Perfect performance or obedience to the law is anyway impossible. We could never measure up to God's standard. That's why we place our faith in Jesus, because he did measure up. He could do it. He did do it on our behalf. It says in verse 11, so it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For scripture says it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Jesus is greater than a place. He's greater than your performance or my performance, because I get to put my faith in Him, His finished work, His ability, His ability enables me, His performance empowers me, I rely fully on Him. And then lastly, Jesus is greater than the pools. Here is where you've been wondering the whole time, what is Aiden going to say when we start preaching about pools? Like, what is that about? John chapter 5 records this incredible story of a lame man, not like a lame, like he was a loser man, like lame as in he couldn't walk. Because often when I read the Bible, I'm like, shame. Like, why call him that? Oh, no, it's because he couldn't walk. That's why. But John chapter 5 records the story of the healing of the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. And this story is so incredible because in a moment, Jesus approaches this man. He's been lying there for years. He's been lying there for most of his life. And Jesus asks this man in John chapter 5, he asks him, friend, do you want to be well? And we would naturally think the best response would be just to go, yes, I want to be well. Can you heal me? But instead, this man says, Man, Jesus, whoever you are, whenever the waters are stirred, because this was actually an incredibly like strange place, because whenever waters were stirred, there was like healing powers in them. People could go into the pools and they could be healed of whatever ailment or sickness or disease they had. Now I'm wondering, why would this guy even be there? He can't even walk. Like the chances of getting into the pool is anyway nada, okay? So he says to Jesus, whenever the water is stirred and the healing power is available, I have no one to take me into the water. 
Jesus looks at this man and he gives him an instruction. He tells him, friend, get up, take your mat and go home. He heals him instantly. Why speak about this? Because the reality is you and I, wherever you might be in life, but we have certain pools that we look to, to satisfy us. All of us look for affirmation, purpose, direction, healing, comfort, salvation, freedom, whatever you may be looking for. And we have certain pools in our lives that we think this is what is going to provide for this need that I have. This need for purpose or this need for healing or this need for salvation, this need for comfort or direction or whatever the case may be. I have a need and I have an idea of what will be able to satisfy that need. It might be the degree that you're studying. You think once I've got that degree, life will make sense. Once I get that degree to have that job and get that salary, then I will be fulfilled. Maybe it's a person. You think when I meet the one, when I finally have that special someone, then I will feel whole. Then I will feel complete. Then I will feel that my life has meaning. We look to things. When I get that house one day, when I buy that car one day, then life will make sense. Then I will be satisfied. Then I will no longer covet or look or seek all these things. Once I have A, B, or C, then X, Y, and Z will finally make sense to me. You know the pool that you look to? That thing you run to, thinking this is it? This is the thing that will satisfy. This is the thing that will give me purpose. This is the thing that will finally satisfy this lame in me, this disease, this sickness of wanting to belong or have significance somewhere. Meanwhile, Jesus is standing in front of this man asking him, do you want to be well? And he says, look, the pool. I need someone to take me to the pool. I need someone to help me into the pool. And the very son of God is right in front of this man. We might think, yo, he's belachelijk. We think, yo, he's stupid. Obviously, just tell this Jesus you want to be well. He can heal you. Friends, we do the exact same thing. We have the very nature, the very presence, the most holy, the most significant, the one who created it all, sustains it all by a word of his mouth residing in us. And yet sometimes we go, oh, but the pool, I need the pool. I need someone to help me to the pool. You know, the more you say a word, the funnier it sounds. I'm like, is, is pool even a word now? And I don't even know, but because it's, it's starting to sound funny. But we do the exact same thing. We go, if this happens, if I can have this, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be healed. Then I won't feel so empty anymore, so lonely, so insignificant. And Jesus in this moment is saying, my friend, I'm greater than a pool. You think this place is special? You think this place where the waters stir every now and then and something magical happens? Wait until you meet me. 
Wait until you have an interaction with me. Because I am the very God you're looking for. I actually have the power to tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he does. Because he loves this man. Jesus is greater than a place. You don't need to go to a place. If you have faith in Jesus, the very God who created the heavens and the earth resides in you. If you're wondering where is Jesus, he lives in you, my friend. That is, that's radical. Thinking this, this person, yo, <laughs> this person who like messes up and sleeps late and eats pizza and like farts, you know, and does weird things now and then. This person, God lives in me and he lives in you. Jesus is greater than a place. He's greater than your performance. You could never perform your way into his good book, so stop trying. Just rely on his performance. Rely on his holiness. Rely on the fact that he was able to be obedient when we could not. Rely on the fact that he did what we could not. Rely on the fact that he is who we could never be. And because of that, I am. It's weird and poetic, I know, but it makes sense. And lastly, Jesus is greater than the pools that you think will satisfy, that you think will bring about healing in your own life. He's greater than those things. Can I invite the worship team to join me on stage? Because we need to respond to this. We need to respond to this. I was so convicted in just preparing this message throughout the week because I was so convicted about the fact that sometimes my picture, my idea, my conclusion about Jesus is way too small. It's way too small. And I think that's why it's so significant. Matthew 16, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? What is your conclusion about me? My friends, sometimes our conclusion about Jesus, who he is, what he came to do, and what he's made available for us is so small. And I'm trusting that in this moment, the Holy Spirit is reminding us, teaching us, showing us again the reality, the weightiness of the truth about who Jesus is and how much greater he is than we could ever imagine. We need to respond to this. Can I invite you to stand with me? We're going to respond in worship. And I want to invite you those of you who know me, you know that I'm an incredibly practical person. I believe in making things practical, landing it in some practical way so that I'll never forget it, so that I'll always look back on it, so that I'll always remember it. And what I want us to do is I'm going to pray for us in a moment. I'm going to pray for us and I want us to together surrender the really small ideas that we have about Jesus. Surrender the really tiny picture you may have of who this God actually is. So if you're comfortable, won't you just lift your hands with me? There's nothing magical about this. This is just a practical expression saying, God, I'm open open to what you want to say. 
And maybe I can invite you just to quickly create some space around you. Just take a step further from the friend that you are with. Just get some space around you. And I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to pray for your own heart. And I want you to pray this very simple prayer. Jesus, you are greater than what I could ever imagine. You're bigger. You're more holy. You're more significant. You're better. You are wiser. You are stronger. You are far beyond what I could ever dream or imagine. What a message. If you feel that someone would benefit from this, share it with them. We are all about family on mission.